The Brown Sign Project podcast is proudly supported by Stephen Spencer and Associates. There's reopening, then there's building back better, then there's creating a sustainable future business model. From managing change to customer experience design and brand communication, our innovation toolkit helps visitor attractions and destinations build forward better. You're listening to the Brown Sign Project podcast, bringing people together to share experiences and what they love about working within the tourism industry to inspire and empower the next generation of tourism professionals. Join Carlton and Carly as they dive into the world of visitor journey mapping. They will be bringing together panels of specialists to guide and help us understand visitor journey mapping and its role in delivering memorable visitor experiences. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Brown Sign Project. I'm with Carly as normal. Hello, Carly. Hello, how are you? I am good. I'm good. I'm in nice sunny Dubai at the moment. Um, a bit hot, um, but it's all good. We are now on episode five and we're going to be talking about retail and how that fits into the customer journey. And we've got two amazing people to talk about that. So let me quickly introduce you to John. Hello, John. Hello. Hi, Carl. Hello. Thanks for joining us. And we have got Jonathan. Hello. Hello. Nice to meet you. You I made it really confusing by having a John and a Jonathan today, but we're going to be very specific about John or Jonathan. Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) So, John, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do? Uh, What I do? Well, for the last seven years, I've been working in my own practice, a consultancy, um, primarily on business strategy and commercial development in the culture and heritage sectors and some some niche areas as well and, and charities. Um, with specialisms in retail, hospitality, uh, some venue hire, but also visitor service and customer experience. And sometimes it goes into other areas as well, um, depending on the the needs of the client. Going way back, I I sort of got into this, um, having graduated quite a long time ago, and then uh, tried to decide what to do. I um, got a casual job at Harrods one Christmas. And then decided actually it would be a sensible thing to go on to their graduate training programme, which I did, because it was a very good one at that time. And then from uh, Harrods went on to Hamleys, so both premium retail brands. Um, And then I did a circuitous route into the culture and heritage sector, um, working first of all for a, a charity called the Charities Advisory Trust, which is not public facing it actually advises other charities and bodies on income generation and trading specifically and that's where i was brought in because they'd just taken on a contract at that time to manage the trading birmingham museum and art gallery this is quite a long time ago um but from there i moved to the royal academy which is actually something that um, jonathan and i have in common Uh, i was at the royal academy for several years um rising to the position of head of commercial, the responsibility across retail, catering, um, fine art framing business, licensing, um, e-commerce, all those sort of things, everything actually except publishing. And then moved to the Science Museum Group where um, I was head of commercial um, across five museums that were in the, the group, including the Science Museum in London, Railway Museum in York and the Media Museum in Bradford. That's uh, three, um, Shildon Railway Museum, uh, called Locomotion, and Museum Science Industry in Manchester, which came into the group while I was there, which was really interesting on integrating 
commercial, including commercial systems, integrating a museum into, into that. Um, and then um, left there to set up on my own to do what I'm doing now. It, it, we have to have a discussion one day, John, on one of our uh, on one of our other episodes about kind of career progression because yeah. you've worked in some super interesting uh, locations along the way. It's always interesting as well, like you say, when your career sort of coincides with other people. So that brings us on to Jonathan, obviously, who has an RA background. But um, yeah, I think it's always nice when you sort of you always meet people along the way in your career path of you think oh yeah we both worked there and it might have been at different times but you've always had that in common particularly particularly in this sector I think oh yeah it's a very small world it's a very small world lovely so Jonathan tell us about you hello um so I'm currently commercial director at the Courtauld um obviously we're about to reopen November um and uh, like John said, I pre- previous to that, I was uh, head of commercial at the Royal Academy. Um, and then previous to that, I was head of commercial at uh, the Shard as well. And I guess that's really been my sort of entry into uh, our sector. Um, and before that, my background was really sort of pure retail. So I started very much uni and then uh Saturday boy at John Lewis and kind of worked my way up to doing all sorts of bits within the partnership so opening stores to running their sort of warehouses um and then doing construction for them um and then I sort of left there and done flurries in uh, luxury retail so selfridges and then going to boutique stuff so out of a bonus and sort of paper chase and I guess throughout uh my sort of career has always been trying to go into uh, sort of the attractions and how do you further that sort of retail path into something more creative, more interesting. Um, so obviously coming through to the Shards and developing everything we did there and then through CRA um, and now at the quarter where we're sort of embarking on really sort of expanding what we're doing in retail how we make that more immersive, how we bridge the gap between high street and uh, sort of heritage um, and making it really different. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit about me. That's awesome. Thank you very much for that intro. All right. So um, are there any conflicts between making money and providing great service? Um, let's start with John. Um, well, actually, I'd flip that round and say that you need to provide great service and great experiences in order to make money in any sustainable way. Um, if you don't provide a good service, people are not going to engage with your money-making side. If you think, um, I mentioned it being in the cultural and heritage sector, um, if people don't have a good experience, they're not going to engage with the experience and therefore are going to be less inclined to visit the shop, visit the cafe, uh, and less inclined um, to visit again and less inclined to give um, positive word of mouth. So I think you have to get that great service right in order to make money. So I would, I would flip it round. Um, if people have a good visit, they're more likely to repeat um, and they're more likely to recommend it to other people. And you see this in many occasions um, where the service um, levels are high, you tend to get a higher um, conversion rate from visitor to customer in retail and they spend more um so it, it, it's sort of a virtuous circle really Jonathan do you find that at the um Courtauld or your previous attractions as well that play out in real life do you think um I think they 
they do and I, I i sort of i concur with everything that john's just said there but i almost sort of i look at it from the retail and commercial side um and i because there's always that question of um obviously you need to make money most of the institutions or attractions need that money to, to do either sort of uh, operate or to further what they might be doing. So they might have a mission or, or vision and they have to obviously rely on that cash. Um, but I turn it around almost and say, well, okay, the people that are visiting you, you need to obviously make them buy something, but it's how you go about curating as opposed to just simply plonking product within lots of the retail spaces or just putting food on the table for them to buy so it's i think you can commercialize it and you can make money out of it um but i think as long as you're sort of curating the product and it's men and it's got sort of a reason to be purchased um, and you're not just sort of creating what i call kind of sort of Turked in someone's home and I think that's that's only a good thing but I also think that it's not just about commercializing it for one instance I think it's about how do you make that experience really special um, but how do you make that experience feel part and parcel of their you know it could be a weekly thing it could be a monthly thing it could be a couple of times a year so how do you sort of keep that sort of uh, the long tails of that journey longer than just I'm going to come for one visit and then I'll never, they'll never come again. And I think that's really important. Uh, and then it sort of then folds into the visitor experience, but also that the visitor experience starts from before they've even physically got to, you know, your, your, you know, your site. It starts from the booking process, it starts from the online shop. It all has to happen there first as well, because usually that's where most people would try and find out a little bit first before coming to the door. So I think it's it's a whole combination of things. Yeah, and I will say I'm a big fan of random talk in my house from gift shops. <laughs> you could, for those that... For those of you listening, we are we're all on video at the moment. We won't share those videos for uh, well, mainly you know, need to put some makeup on first. But um, normally, in my background is my office, and at the moment, I'm not in my office, but it is full of tourist attraction tut. Um, and and I'm with you. I think there's there's plenty of tourist attractions that just have gift shops full of mediocre, not really, you know, mission driven relevant to the museum relevant to the attraction itself stuff and I think you're right that it, actually what works really well is when that flows through the whole process and you can see this thing relates to the experience that I'm having and this and therefore I want to give money because it reminds me of my experience or you know it generates a feeling in me and that that's all driven by your your mission of your museum is that you you have to know what that money is going towards and what that money is meant to be doing and that helps you have a better understanding you know, and, a, and a better relationship, definitely. I think relevance is relevance of product, thinking about the merchandise mm. side, the relevance of the product uh, to the organisation, because it's the heritage and culture sector in particular are in a really unique position because, as we know, people are looking for ex experiences and visiting a site is an experience. So it's, it's the experiential retail 
uh, that people, you know, her heritage sites and museums, it's a given. They've got that. They've got that uniqueness. They've got that exclusivity. They've got that, that experience. So the retail should be building on that. And it's, it's part of a narrative, as Jonathan says, you know, from first going onto the website to look at, you know, opening times and, you know, uh, prices uh, right through that, that, that chain of, I think you always say storytelling or a narrative that runs through, that brings all these things together. Um, retail is part of it. Quite often it's towards the end of the visit. So all that stuff before has got to have been working well to get that spend in the shop. And obviously you can do a certain amount in the shop with your range selection and as John said, curated ranges, but also exclusivity um, because that's a unique thing and relevance, uh, which people are looking for. They're looking for a continuation of that experience. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. I, I want to kind of like jump on and ask another question on that. So um, pre-COVID, um, I want to kind of talk about, especially you guys are based in the UK, um, do you think tourist attractions have had a good balance of visitor experience and commercial in their attractions? Or is there still a lot of work to go to get that balance? I think it depends on where you go to. Um, I would say that if it's more attraction or museum led, I think there's less, well, there's certainly when our, you know, the, the sort of institutes and attractions that I've been to, I feel like there's less reliance on putting on uh, good service because before the pandemic, then there was obviously just, you know, sheer number of, of volume and it's really sort of, you know, it's almost like having to just her cheap because there's so many people, um, you just have to push them through, get them through the experience and then, you know, you everything sort of falls down a little bit. But actually, that's good in one sense, but now obviously we've had, the, you know, going through the pandemic and, and we're sort of reopening, it's more important that you have all your sort of T's crossed and actually you concentrate on, you know, those few people that are coming through now in terms of domestic tourists um, to make sure that they are getting uh, the right level of service, that they do feel comfortable, that they know where, you know, they know that they're in a safe environment. Um, and that they can sort of take their time to go to go through and, and, and sort of explore the artifacts, look at the, the art, but explore the attraction itself. And I think some of those have been sort of missed, and I think it's really important that that's really prioritised now. Like, they're not just, you know, cash cows. You actually have to treat them like, like you know, like actual proper visitors and, and give them more. What they, what they expect and I think that's really important. Yeah and I think people will be because we're not um, like if you know if I was going to New York for a week I would happily just check off the things that I wanted to see right and, and vice versa if people are coming to London for a week or somewhere else you know another another big city Edinburgh or, or Birmingham wherever is that they'll have certain things that they check off but they won't necessarily be thinking Oh, you know, I, I, that experiential retail stuff probably doesn't factor a lot into that. It's, it's you know, it's a, a, a checklist sort of visit. But actually, when people are staying more local, they're probably more likely to, to want that kind of thing anyway, because 
they you know what sets you apart from the other museum it might be a museum I've been to 20 30 times before it might be an attraction that you know is in my hometown and has I've got a lot of competition for actually those things are going to be the things that make a difference and and keep people spending and not just checking the box it's in that we've been so reliant on international and, and long distance travel I think for a lot of the big nationals that that's really going to change you know for, the, for probably the next couple of years really I think some of the something's come out of looking at the COVID safety is organisations have had to really think about their visitor journey. They've had to think about it from a safety point of view. But you know, now we've, you know, most attractions and heritage sites, you have to pre-book, but that wasn't the case before. So you've got to make sure your booking system works and what else can you add on to that experience? So it, it's rather forced some organisations to rethink that whole process about how people are greeted because you know you've got to perhaps do temperature checks whatever but it is that greeting has to be thought about and I, I know that was that phrase going around about you know sanitize your building not your experience and so that was uh, forcing people to think slightly differently and think more about the customer and how the customer navigates and journeys through the experience yeah and I think that's interesting because one of the conversations I had quite early on was about uh you know when we when we were right at the beginning of, of closures. And I said, actually, I thought some of the smaller museums would, would fare better because of that, because they've always had to think about that visitor experience because they haven't got that national pull. So the places that aren't the places that you normally tick off if you're going on holiday actually probably are more used to doing that level of, of looking at their customer and looking at their customer journey just because they, they, they've never been able to take the visitor numbers for granted. or So, yes, yeah, so I think that's, that is interesting mm. that that's sort of how it's panned out. And they've also usually been the better ones at doing really good experiential retail, even if they didn't think about it as experiential retail. But, you know, you go to a small local museum, they probably do have local crafts and, and mission-driven gift shops and, and more interaction because that's just the way they are set up. So, you know, it, it's a totally different kettle of fish, really, to, to what we're seeing now. But they've probably, you know, they've always kind of had that. And I think it's the bigger ones that are now catching up, the people that have been a little bit more lax about planning that customer journey and making sure that, it, you know, it's, their mission is all the way through that. But, yeah, I think it's definitely changing. Which brings me, actually, to my next question, which is... Um, we always talk about exiting through the gift shop and it's, you know, we, we, famous phrase. Um, when we talk about exiting through the gift shop, we always, it's always sort of seen as a, as a negative thing that, you know, it's, it's like wringing every last penny out. But we also then talk about, you know, when people leave our attractions, it's a really important part of the customer journey because they're, they're hopefully leaving with really great experiences, really great memories. And do you ever think that those two things are linked, potentially, that there's a link between memories and, and buying or that there's a link between that good experience and, and commercial? That's really sort of a, the, the thought that I thought would be interesting to discuss. So, Jonathan, I, you're nodding <laughs> vigorously at me. So tell me what you think. So <clears throat> that has been my mission uh, ever since I started in the sector with uh, the Shard and then obviously through to the RA um, and it's been about you know uh, I almost hate the term gift shop like I don't refer it to as the gift shop because it's sort of like it symbolizes when I was a little 
boy and going to like a design museum and you'd have those little the little string with a little pouch and you've got your few coins in there to go and spend some money on you know like pocket money bits and pieces and, and that's always sort of rings true but I think for me it's about um going back to the create the sort of curation but almost extension of not just if it's the attraction of the museum or the exhibition it's, it's how you extend that experience um and certainly at the ra uh, when i was there we bridged exhibition and shop together um so you know when we recreated the new spaces in the ra we had the main shop and then we had gallery 10 which was a blended space and it's how you bring those different sort of fields together so you know we would create an exhibition shop which lots of lots of you know other galleries do but it's how you extend that so how does it you know blend from one zone straight into uh, that sort of pop-up shop or uh, immersive shop but it still feels one and the same so it could be more sort of curated special editions um, it could be things which um, you know you haven't seen within the actual exhibition itself or sort of one-offs um, or collabs and those are the things which really sort of you know set yourselves apart but also allow people to continue that journey they you know they may have been through an amazing experience but you you don't want it to stop um, and one of the things that I think is really interesting is how you then bring that together through merchandise but also through catering as well um, so you shouldn't be afraid to blend those three together um, so we created a, a sort of almost a, a Picasso pop-up uh, where we sort of decked it out in sort of a little Parisian style cafe and they could draw on the table on the sort of table mats and make their own Picasso and, and we, you know we asked them to Instagram it um, but at the same time we gave them some pencils of the things that we sold as part of that collection. So again, you're introducing elements of, you know, curated product, but something fun and an extension for them to do. Then they can have a cake and a coffee as if they were in Paris as well. So it's, that is, it's about that memory and it's there for a limited period of time. And so they'll always remember, I remember when I was doing this, this and this, that was there. So then I think it sort of blends into what you do in, in the rest of retail is how do you again extend and one of the things that we've been really sort of paramount in doing is not having to have the sort of staple requirements of what everybody would imagine a gift shop to have so you don't need 10 different badges across your soil you don't need 10 different sharpness pencils it's okay to have one and not have it repeated in another range but also it's okay just to have I don't know 10 or something and when it runs out it runs out um, I think you know if you create the, the product which is you know it's it's come from a you know it's beautifully made it's beautifully sourced it's packaging sorted and it looks beautiful it's almost that sort of buy me now and if you don't buy it and then you come back and say a week or two weeks it's okay that it might run out and it's not there. And that's the sort of the ethos that we're sort of going on is that I'm I'm happy if people say, oh, you know, that was there last week. Do you still have it? And I'm like, 
sorry, you know, like it was so popular, it's gone. But we do have this other one, which is different. Um, so it, again, it's how how do you extend that sort of, you know, you sort of create that demand and you create that sort of want for that beautiful product. Um, and now they don't have it. They'll remember actually next time, if I see something, I should guess it um, and take it with me because the next time I visit, it's not going, it might not be there, but I'll have something else. And, and that's really about, we shouldn't be too worried about over mass producing products. It's okay just to have short runs and also to source locally. If you can find locally made products or local artisans, do that. Um, and, you know, that's something that has really sort of, especially while the R8 has really transformed the way that sort of retail environment and space works. And I think it's how the sector needs to think differently about how we evolve, but also people have more choice. People have less money uh, or a bit more money conscious about how they're spending their money. So they need to think about actually it's an investment and that they're buying into something as opposed to just buying something which they're just throwing away. We, we had a chat about a couple of months ago, me and Jonathan, and something that you kind of triggered my mind is your retail offering the cakes and the coffees and stuff was all served in the middle of the actual experience and not at the end. Um, can you just briefly just tell us why they did that? Why did that attraction to go down that road? Um, so we we did that really to almost put a, a, a almost not a, a, a permanent break or a stop, but it, it's almost like a, a thinking point. So it's really just sort of allowing the visitor to sort of think, oh, what is this, and explore, um, but almost a bit of a, a pause, so it's a natural sort of pause in terms of dwell time. Um, so sometimes you want to sort of um, <clears throat> maybe slow down the rate of flow, um, you want them to sort of explore what they're, what, what they're doing, and we did that on purpose to allow that flow to happen, but in to introduce something which they would never think would normally uh, be done, and, you know, actually question actually that's actually really clever or oh, I didn't think that this would be here um, and it is sort of the funny thing is is when you see people congregating they were sitting and they were sort of having their coffee and you had all these other people around you who were carrying on doing you know having the experience of, of, of the exhibition you almost create that sort of jealousy so they're enjoying experience for all the other people around them now can't take part in and so and then you again you know you sort of build that sort of oh I wish I could I could do that is there a, a space free and you create that sort of demand and again it's how you sort of you know if you're in the moment you can you can have that and if you miss out then you miss out um, and I think that's what then triggers you to remember um, not just the exhibition or the sort of retail experience but <clears throat> the overall so it's catering retail and the actual exhibition or attraction and I think that's really important um, and those are the lasting memories so people will either remember that and think oh that was amazing I wish I could have done that or I need to try and remember to do that again and it's also being to turn it upside down and say we're not going to follow the norm and not be afraid to not follow the norm i think that's really important as well challenge what has been the norm for so long i think is really good because it 
it's what keeps you different and differential. Um, and I think that's more important now as we come out of sort of uh, lockdown and we reopen, that people are going to be wanting to look for those spaces which are different and are doing things differently. Um, and I think that can only build your sort of customer base and your repeat customer. Mm. Um, and John, obviously you work with a number of clients looking at, you know, quite diverse retail offerings and commercial offerings. Are you seeing a sort of change from the, the traditional exit through the gift shop and, and sort of where that sits in the journey? Because we always think of it as being at the end, but actually I haven't seen that unless it's a really specific space in quite a while, actually. I think it also look what a challenge, excuse me, a challenge that a lot of organisation has are the buildings that they're in. They don't actually uh, offer the facility to exit necessarily via a gift shop. So you may be thinking about um, how you bring, you may have a shop that's, let's say, off the beaten track, but adjacent to. You may actually want to bring that retail offer into another space that people are going through to sort of sow the seeds of, oh, I'd like to see more of that. You know, so just putting a capsule range into a high traffic area um, as, a, as a signpost to more that lays beyond. Um, the project I worked on fairly recently was one where um, there was a very, very high ceiling in a, in a reception space. Um, it, it was almost like there should have been a staircase there, but there wasn't. So it was very tall. And actually that became one of the things that were proposed was for the posters and prints to become like a gallery, but with below the, the pictures on the wall, there would be the stock so you could buy them. So it sort of was very relevant. The imagery was very relevant to the subject of the organization. Um, but you didn't at first as you feel, feel that you would be in a shop and this was all a proposal stage and I was working with architects on it. And I thought that was just a really interesting way of using a space that otherwise could be tricky, um, but creating a mini exhibition where everything was for sale. Yeah, so. I, you just reminded me actually, I did some work with um, a group of museums in Helsinki where they were talking about, they had um, some really kind of awkward spaces in some of their galleries. And so they decided to just put little pop-up bookshelves in there. Mm -hmm. And so people could pick up a book as they were sort of walking around in these little sort of cubby holes almost, and then have a little flick through it and then as they came through through the shop at the end, you know, they, they could pay for it or they could just move it to another bookshelf or whatever. Mm. And they, they put all, all the books that they were, you know, that were, were sort of overstocked off in previous exhibitions were just sort of dotted around and became sort of like little exhibitions in their own right. Mm. So I think, yeah, encouraging people to sort of look at maybe spaces that they wouldn't think of as commercial. Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it's not going to harm anything. And, and in some cases can really, you know, you, if you get it right, really... It, enhance people's experience definitely yeah. and I, I do think that you know i don't like the word memento but sometimes that's what people are looking for if, they, if they've engaged with whatever they've experienced they the two things they'll be able to do they want, might want to deepen that engagement and find things that are related to that experience you know maybe books or, or, or whatever you know, to take them further into the, their understanding of the subject um, or to take a memento a memory whether it's a self-purchase or it's a gift, um, something that reminds them of that experience of I was there to see that or whatever it is. I think. Yeah, and so, I think that me... I don't like the word though. I haven't thought another one. <laughs> no, and I, memory, I, I prefer Jonathan's word of you know general tut. <laughs> <which> <laughs> is... <laughs> 
Yeah, what, what I tend to come back with from places that I visited. But yeah. yeah, I think you're right though. There's for a lot of people, I'm a really sort of hands-on person. And that, you know, as much as I love going around a museum and and looking at things or you know in an art gallery and looking at things is I find that quite a frustrating experience Mm -hmm. because I want something that I can touch and I can hold and you know I love a physical book or if I can bring home you know a a small version of a sculpture or you Mm. know some postcards of the artwork that I can have in my own space that for me is that's going to deepen my relationship with that experience that I had because you know in, in some cases you can't allow people to to touch your artwork or touch your the parts of your whatever your content might be but there's nothing that you know stops you sort of of a 3d dinosaur jigsaw you know that enhances your understanding of the the um the work you've seen or whatever it might be you know if you're not natural history museum yeah that's particularly going to be adults buying for children because it is seen as a learning activity um oh no that's just me loving you know a dinosaur right you love dinosaurs (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. so you tend to get parents and grandparents will be will be buying yeah. for children because it's seen as a, uh, a a learning thing you know taking the example of the royal academy is something about color you know it's it's part of a learning activity learning about color and use of color yeah i mean i always thought you know one of my favorite places is um the pencil museum up in the lake district <laughs> and and the, the museum in mean, the museum's great like you know it's, it's a very small museum but actually the, the thing that i love about it is that you sit in their cafe and you can buy colouring books and you can, you know, they just leave pads of paper around and you can buy really nice pencils. And, you know, me and, me and my husband, have, a couple of times when we've been in that area, we've just gone and sat in their cafe and drawn for an hour. And, mm. you know, just it's a totally different experience. And I think when people talk about commercial opportunities, they think very much of what Jonathan said earlier about, you know, having that pocket money and buying a pencil and a rubber. And they don't think about the more experiential stuff. And I think that that's where we're getting to with it. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Um, I'm, we're going to go to our next question. I'm, I'm really interested to find out your views on this because I think this, this question affects every attraction ever. And it's all about external agencies. So the question is, how do we bring, or how do you bring, external agencies into your brand? So can I start with John on this one, if that's okay? Yeah, I bringing in other agencies or other partners. Um, what I've done in certainly two locations were quite large contracts with, with, with catering. And uh, from the customer point of view, they shouldn't see the join. You know, it should be one organisation. Unless you're bringing in, for example, a premium brand in catering, perhaps you're bringing, you know, you might be working with a partner and bringing in a named chef to create so-and-so's kitchen at, or whatever it is. Um, that that's slightly slight exception but otherwise you want it to still be aligned with the brand with the missions with the values of the host organization and i think the way of achieving that is going to sound really boring um is to have a really good specification so that the partners you're going to work to are really clear on what your values are what your mission is um and also about your audience who's your audience and information and some visitor insight so that they, they've got something to build on um, so I think it, it all really starts at the even before you've started talking to potential partners it's being about very clear about your organization and about what you're looking for um, 
otherwise if you just you know there's a lot a number of contract caterers out there if you just go for that contract caterer's basic model you sort of bit square pegs in round holes so really good brief and specification um aligned to the audience but then you still want that the reason why you're bringing another partner is to bring it partners to bring in their expertise and points of creativity so you are still looking for the bits that stand out and are something different um and that that happens um i think it was up at edinburgh castle where a well-known contractor had the contract and they put in um not quite a tea room, but they put in really quite contemporary afternoon tea into Edinburgh Castle. I don't know how it's fared now, but it just was a point of difference. And it was done in, in quite a sort of boutique style. And I think that's what is important with particularly catering when you're bringing somebody in. It does need to have that essence of the organisation, the host organisation about it, and, and bring in those twists. So I think, you know, the RA's got a lot of catering more now than it had when I was there um, and I'd seen in the press they're about to do something new with a new new partner in one of their um, you know, two of their, their catering outlets which is really exciting to see uh, working with you know named chefs I believe it was a, a tapas bar going in so I, I, th I think it, it can be done and the first bit sounds a bit boring but getting your ducks in a row basically yeah and that it's interesting because i think when when we talked about sort of external agencies i think everybody's mind goes to you know that the very standard this is an outsourced cafe and you know that yeah. that is really ubiquitous isn't it and but yeah the idea of like actually finding a partner that can deliver something that you yourself wouldn't be able to deliver mm. i think is 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 huge and i think you know that again leading on from more experiential stuff is actually thinking about what commercial partners you might work with that actually add to your experience and, and deliver something that you you might never have done and whether that's let's say a, an afternoon tea or maybe an evening event you know with, with a licensed bar and the things that you maybe just normally wouldn't be able to touch but yeah there's there's so much opportunity out there I think let's say if you just need the, the right brief to say yeah. this is actually who we are what can yeah. we deliver along that uh, that was something we did, certainly the Science Museum group um, in, in the London Science Museum. I think we had five different catering offers and they were all targeted different things from, you know, one end there was the tuck shop. Then there was the not quite grab and go, but that sort of family environment. And then there was the one that was a table service that it, for families as well, that, you know, uh, if you've spent half the morning going around the Science Museum, which is quite a big place, you know, Mum and Dad want to sit down and have a coffee, or the, you know, the adults want to sit down and have a coffee and not have to carry trays and all the rest of it. So there were different levels of experience. And one of the things I actually did go in there was a shake bar, uh, which at that, that time was sort of fairly innovative, innovative to put a shake bar into a, a museum. And that was massively successful and popular. Um, so, so there's something like that. And also we did another thing at the National Railway Museum. Um, we themed, working with our partner, uh, we themed the, the catering and in what's called Station Hall, which is original part of, it was a, a parcel station actually for York um, and the trains would come in unload. The space was created so that part of the experience, there were actually these three massive packing cases built with room sets in them and they were part of that cafe, that sort of showing that this is how it was before, you know, it was for packing cases, it wasn't for people. But then we put it in a sort of a more of a Victorian style 
or the essence of the Victorian style catering where the uh, you know the service areas and that were done in the style of t uh, Victorian ticket offices so it was, it was bringing that theming in and one of the things that was actually just as I was leaving was um, a fine dining offer in a railway carriage it sort of makes sense it's a railway museum <laughs> yeah and I think they say that those types of things quite a lot of the time you can only deliver you know, we, we know what attractions are like at the moment. Everybody's trying to do everything with fewer staff, few, mm. you know, lower budgets, less overheads. And actually, those things are the, the sort of things where if you can find an, an outside agency to help you with them, that you sort of lo lower your risk as well. And, you know, mm. whether that's on a profit share and you, you both do well out of it or it's, you know, it allows you to do something a bit more experimental that you just don't have the confidence to deliver yourselves. I think that is that does make a massive difference. Mm -hmm. Um, I know, Jonathan, you, you've been working on um, some new things <laughs> at the Cordal. Do, do you want to tell us what you can tell us about those? <laughs> and then maybe we'll have to leave some things out, but uh, I'm sure that they all sound very exciting. I was going to say that it's quite timely because uh, I'm about to switch on or go live with our catering tender on Monday. Uh, so this is all really relevant, um, but obviously it extends from some of the things that we did at, at the RA, um, and we had sort of this was long established um, partnerships and partners who are working in terms of catering, and obviously you know in many ways they were used to working in a, in a particular format and style, and it was about how do we break down those barriers and change things and involve things um, and towards the end of when I was, I was leaving we were transforming uh, one of the membership rooms and it was really about how we took control in terms of the voice and tone um, of, of the offer but also in terms of the environment um, and we dictated the design we dictated uh, what the offer should be uh, but we worked with them um, and you know it, it worked really well because you needed that sort of tie-in you didn't want to lose the sense of who they were as a caterer but it needed to feel part and parcel and going back to what John said that you know to the visitor they don't know who who they are it all needs to represent uh, you know the organization that they're visiting have little flurries of the third party and so, so bring that sort of full second to the core sort of what we are doing and what I've been quite sort of, I've not sort of said, but, you know, I've had objection to it, but I've just said, no, this is the way we're doing it. And, and I stand by this is that I've already designed the space. I've already commissioned, uh, worked with the architect that I normally work with that's all done we've done the branding and we are selling that to the tenderer as a complete you know you the, the reasons why we've designed it is that <clears throat> it does have assemblies with the rest of the courtals it's got ties um, it is bold it's very very different in terms of its look but the way I see it is that it's an asset to the supplier that's coming in it's an additional asset to their estate. So it's a unique asset. So, you know, they might have a uniform sort of uh, own branding and, and sort of culture, but actually what they're gaining is something more unique and more sellable from my eyes. 
and I think it's important that institutions, galleries and attractions aren't afraid to almost be conformist. So, you know, you would do the standard sort of tender, you would do the standard spec, um, and then you would wait for your responses and you almost are driven by your sort of tenderers, as it were. Whereas what we're doing here is we're saying, this is the environment, this is the space, this is what you have to work with. We have thought about everything from a catering operator point of view. Um, you know, do you want to be part of that journey? And that's, I think, where you then form those relationships of them understanding what it is that you're looking for. In terms of the offer, again, it's about tone of voice in terms of what the offer should feel like, what it should look like. And it's for them to sort of come up with a representation of how they fulfill that brief and whether or yeah. not that sort of works and, and that's what uh, you know we're carrying through. That's interesting as well because you know you said about having the, the tender out and I, I do a lot of work for ticketing tenders for ticketing um, of tourist attractions and it's the one thing that we talk about a lot and I think gets missed out which you, you've you've picked up on which is actually that tone of voice is actually who are we as an organization because not every partner that you want to work with they might have the greatest catering they might have the best ticketing software they might just not get you as an organization they might just not fit the bill and I think that's really interesting that's in I think tone of voice is probably the best way to to explain it is actually how do we talk when we talk to our customers and are they going to use that same voice? Are they going to come across in the same way? Because it's quite nice sometimes to have a partner who will do something totally different to you, who will come in and say, oh, actually, you do it this way. We do something totally different to that. And we're going to really, you know, change the audience or whatever it might be um, to, to give a different dimension to an attraction that maybe has a, a pretty, you know, set audience and, and needs to grow another, another avenue. But yeah, I like the idea of actually, it doesn't matter if we're doing something totally different. We still have to come from the same place. We still have to be talking in, you know, in the same tone. I think that's really, really important. Uh, yeah, I'm interested to see how that how that pans out because, yeah, to come yeah, in I mean, think we're going to yeah. do it this way is really interesting. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it is really interesting. I'm, I'm, like, I'm just like sitting and just listening to <laughs> that information and it's brilliant. And um, one thing I just want to kind of... Um, Add in onto that, is it worth getting external agencies to be part of the museum or attractions onboarding experience um, so they can be part of that? Um, I was want to kind of open that up. Uh, you know, have, have you seen any examples of, of museums and attractions doing that? Or so any we, actually, we actually do do that. So we did that in part at the Shard and, and at the RA. But what we're also doing is I think that not almost from a contracting point of view also, but I think that it's important that the whoever the institution is or the organisation is, is part of, to a degree, the vetting of the people that are going to work with you from the third party and not necessarily, for, you know, being fully fledged in terms of the recruitment but at least being able to again going back to that tone of voice but also the behavior so what is it that we're looking for how does that relate into the rest of the organization <clears throat> but also develop a onboarding for third parties and for people that might come in 
to work with you. Um, and I don't think that, you know, that just extends to people who might be doing catering, but it could be, you know, we, we have somebody that, have, that sort of does VM for us and works with me in terms of creating some of the sort of experiences that we do, but they need to understand the culture of the organisation. They need to understand how it works, the structure. And so again, you know, we would put them through a sort of almost onboarding, you know, it could just be like a couple of hours, but at least they get a sense of what the organisation is about, what does it stand for, you know, the court order isn't just the gallery, it's also part of the university, so it's got the faculty and the academic side, so there's a lot more bolted with, with that, and I think a lot of organisations have that, and so it's important to, to do that, so we do have that as part of our induction. I think also it does need to be thought of as a partnership. Um, I have seen in the past that there can be a bit of an us and them. That, oh, well, that's the museum and that's the caterer or that's the contractor. Um, I, I didn't mention in my intro, but I do also have done interim roles and I was an interim commercial director at the Design Museum a few years ago. And one of the things I did was I hosted every Monday morning um, a meeting with all the visitor facing, the heads of all the visitor facing teams, not just those under commercial. And I also asked that the, the general manager for catering came along and he, he hadn't sort of met anybody else before. <laughs> and it just needed to be part of it so that, you know, when we're going around the table towards the end of the session, you know, we've done the you know, previous week and then looking at the following week and what, what was in the pipeline. There was a lot of information coming out about the catering that people hadn't heard before. So it did make it a more integrated approach. And that was just through sort of dialogue and, um, drawing the contractor the, the, the partners into the teams thank you that's yeah i'm really interested to hear more about sort of partnerships because i think it's definitely a way let's say everyone's trying to do more with less and i i just think anytime you can sort of spread the risk and spread that load i think that's going to be a conversation we come back to kind of time and time again really as we you know this this series is one thing but i think our next series we will be still talking about this and you know, pushing the boundaries of what's possible um, with partnerships, definitely. Um, which, I mean, we're, we're, we're going to wrap up soon. So I'm going to come in with our last question, um, which is a really nice one. I always sort of like ending on, on this kind of question, which is that what experience have you had that was sort of a commercial base, if you like, of either, a, you know, commercial being in a, in a tourist attraction or something we weren't expecting or, and, and, what made it so memorable so you guys made me think of as an example we're talking about having you know the commercial part in the middle of your experience and you reminded me that I did the war of the worlds virtual reality um experience which is really cool my, my husband's a really big fan of war of the worlds um and we went and did it and, and the virtual reality part was I mean it is incredible the, the whole experience is incredible in the middle of that they have a bar so you stop you sort of do the first bit of the experience and then you stop in a bar and it's all themed you know it feels and where you are in the story of war of the world it fits sort of where you are and it's it, really cool um and so they kind of sit you in a bar for 20 minutes as your group and and you so you think oh well, we're here now we'll have a drink but nowhere in my mind did I think oh I'm sort of being forced to buy something here it definitely felt like part of the experience and you know actually it was really nice and it broke up lots of other you know really virtual stuff that was going on with a really physical and again you know being a really physical hands-on person for me having food and drink that related to our experience that was in sort of 
inexperience, if you like, worked really well. So I'm just thinking about, you know, if you've got some some great examples of where you've sort of had a commercial experience and thought, that's it, that's, we've nailed it. <laughs> so John, I'm looking at you because you, <laughs> you look like you've got a look in your eye that makes me think you've got one. <laughs> Well, it's one that is, is often cited, so it may not come as much of a surprise, but it's the um, Warner Brothers studio tour making of Harry Potter, uh, which I've been to a couple of times. Oh, and, uh, and anyone who's ever spoken to me on any podcast will, will know that I'm a huge, huge yeah. fan of it. Well, I talk about it constantly. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's right, it is. It, it, it's, they capture that storytelling from the moment you engage. If you engage online, it happens there. Um, you know, it, it's sort of, it's not in the most accessible place. You know, you could go to Watford Junction Station, which is in a train out of Euston or wherever. And then um, there's the Harry Potter shuttle bus, the branded Harry Potter shuttle bus to take you to the experience. I actually drove there and something I wasn't prepared for at all were uniform staff coming up to greet me at the edge of the car park. You know, have you got your ticket? Great. You know, well, if you drive down there, my colleague will point you where to go to the next parking space. And um, then you'll need to go to that area over there where you check your ticket. Um, you can actually pay a premium. I think they did brilliantly. <laughs> you pay a premium to park near the entrance, which is just <laughs> but, uh, but it was from that moment, you know, when, they, you know, I was asked for my ticket, you know, had I got my ticket, et cetera, at the, uh, in the car park. And I was just ushered from one person to the next, very charmingly showing me, you know, where the next place was to park. And of course, that, that is then continues through the experience um, without giving it away. There's a bit you go into an introductory talk and then there's a moment of sort of surprise and delight. I won't ruin it for anyone who hasn't experienced that. Yeah, don't. I, <laughs> I, um, I had initial meetings with them before it opened and then everyone I've taken since then, I sort of have to sit waiting like, yeah, oh, yes. I'm not going to ruin it. I'm not going to ruin it. I had to do it the second time I went. I thought, no, just don't say yeah. anything. Don't say anything. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. and, and the clever aspect is the way you, you navigate through the space because you feel like it's a free flow. But actually, it's, it is directed, but you don't feel it. And... We started off talking about, earlier on, talking about exit through the gift shop. Well, by golly, you do exit through the gift shop. But that whole making of Harry Potter is continued through the gift shop that uh, brilliantly designed, I think, by Callum Lumsden, um, brilliant design using sets and pieces of sets um, from the films are, are used in the retail space. Uh, I, I think it's quite well known within the sector that the, the, you know, the the conversion rates and transaction values are off the scale at the Harry Potter experience. Um, yeah, so it's that whole thing. The first time I went, actually, the bit that wasn't great was the cafe because it was just like, it was almost like a Costa. Um, and I'm, I think there were sort of issues to do that with licensing and so forth, um, you know, brand, brand licenses and property licensing, um, which has now been overcome. And it is very integrated and they're selling butter beer in the cafe, you know, it, it all just fits together. So I'm, I'm a great fan of the Harry Potter experience. Yeah, when they redid the cafe, yeah, I think that did make a massive It did, massive it did, because before it was a little bit like, ooh, it's a bit, doesn't fit. Yeah, it just, you know, it was just, yeah. it was a high, it felt very high yeah. streety, didn't it? Yeah, but it is, I mean, it's very high service levels, yeah. uh, engagement. There's a fantastic story to tell. They tell it really well. And it's a continuous process from, you know, booking online, arriving in the car park, it just follows through. Yeah, and they, they've managed to extract a lot of money out of me in my life, so they're yeah, obviously I, doing all right. <laughs> I, they do, everyone who walks through that shop. If you haven't bought a chocolate frog, you're not... <laughs> oh. 
and Jonathan, has anywhere sort of stick in your memory in terms of that? Well, <clears throat> I was going to, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, Harry Potter World just does it so well, but I was recently at the uh, Van Gogh Live, and that for me was really, really something different. It's sort of, you know, taking 2D art and transforming that into a sort of virtual visual world where you you completely get sort of immersed and lost and they you know you you're given so much time to just sort of wonder and sort of just be within that space and within the art but you sort of almost forget you you lose sense of time you lose a sense of where you are um and it's just so immersive that it allows you to sort of just sort of even for a brief moment just sort of escape and imagine yourself in a completely different to the world and you just forget about everything and I think that's really really important it's taking time for yourself taking time for just to sort of time out and just sort of really get embedded into that and then sort of go through the difference of the spaces um and then when you come out and you come into their sort of shop again it's sort of you know it's it's done in a way that again it's not very many items but it's sort of beautifully created. There are things which are really unique. It's sort of, um, and also sort of, they're not. What was quite interesting is, and, and something that we tried to do is, they're not afraid of having sort of things which are at a reasonable price, also things which really are elevated and one-offs. And I think because you've gone through that experience again, you sort of, it's that sort of it's holding on to those memories again so you don't mind spending something and again when you go through the process of, of paying they'll come to you to pay for it so it's almost like art gallery style and I think it's about taking all those barriers and those boundaries away um, and you know the Apple store does it really really well <clears throat> in terms of facilitating those payments and I think for me that sort of that symbolizes how sort of moving um, more and more to sort of you know do you even need a till point oh now you see now now you've got me interested <laughs> but do you even need a till point yes. it's a discussion I have on a regular basis <laughs> Um, that's another podcast right yeah I mean uh, genuine genuinely could do a whole podcast about do you need a physical till point um yeah and and, but I'm with you one of the interesting things you you said there Jonathan which I think I you know I I I talk to people about a lot is we always sort of think about or we try to accommodate I think when we talk about your standard retail offering we always think oh you know we need to cater for people who haven't got a lot of money and it's like you sort of you get into your mind that like oh we have to have some things that are really super affordable because we you know if we pick up a a 50p spend here and there then that's really great but people forget that there are genuinely people at the other end of that scale who maybe have they've been waiting for that exhibition their whole lives and will genuinely come and spend thousands because it's something that you know they've totally engaged with they you know if you're a, a niche museum or you've got a niche exhibition and and someone is you know genuinely has a a real calling for that that you know you you don't always have to worry about the 50p spends and the 25p spends you know because you might get one that's you know a whole piece of unique artwork that's thousands for some smaller museums you know those types of things can can fund them for for months and I think yeah I think that's really an interesting concept as to how do we make sure we don't alienate everybody 
but also, you know, give, you can sell me anything. I'm terrible. I'm definitely a gift shop um, aficionado. And I think, yeah, I mean, if I've had a great experience, you can pretty much sell me anything at the end. <laughs> good to know, Carly. Very good to know. Yeah, I mean, I we always say this to my husband because my husband works in marketing and he's the easiest person to sell to. And I always tell him he's in the wrong profession, but I'm totally in the wrong profession for someone that has to go to attractions a lot because, yeah, you can, anything in a gift shop can't resist it thank you so much um, for that this has been such an interesting podcast i think we could literally have like a whole series on retail and commercial um especially yeah, maybe, maybe that's next series maybe next maybe week we do gift maybe analysis um before we go i would like to um invite everyone to kind of share where we can find you on online if anybody wants to kind of reach out to you so john where can we find you online um, well, you can find me on LinkedIn, on John Barford. You can find me at my website, which is johnbarford.com. Or you can email me at john at johnbarford.com. I think I've said my name three times there. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. And Jonathan, where can we find you? Uh, again, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I am on Instagram as well. Um, so I'm always sort of taking shots here and there. Um, and also my email is jonathan.ping at courtalk.ac.uk. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm heading over to your Instagram now. <laughs> Pictures of uh, <laughs> tourist attractions on there, I'm in. I'm in. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Really appreciate it. Have a great day, everybody. And thank you so much. <laughs>